One of my favorite subjects in school as I grew up was math. And the reason why I love, all right, we see one, one fist bump in the air for math. Shout out for math. Um, cause I consider myself a problem solver, right? I like to solve problems. Um, and one of the things that I found out in life is that, uh, there's certain problems that are hard to solve and there's certain ones that are pretty easy, right? There's certain problems that take place in your life that if you just ignore them, they'll go away. Telemarketers, they'll go away. Door-to-door salesmen, they'll go away. Online debates, They'll go away. I found out the hard way in college. Girlfriends, if you ignore them, they they will go away. Certain things in life, you can solve them by just ignoring them. But then there's certain things in life that if you ignore them, they don't go away. They actually get worse. Cavities. If you ignore them, they get worse. Spoiled children. If you ignore them and don't address it, they become destructive members of society, right? (laughs) Leaks in your house. If you ignore them, they get worse. There's certain things that can't be solved. They just get worse the more that you ignore them. And so the question that I have is when it comes to relationship with God, what category do you put that in? Is it something that if you find yourself having a problem with God that you just ignore it and you hope that it'll go away and that somehow he'll forget? Or is it a thing where if you ignore the problems that you have with God, do you think that they'll actually get worse? Now, many of us would sit back and say, yeah, well, of course, I know that you can't ignore that stuff, right? That When it comes to problems that I have with God, those are things that I have to address head on. We say that we know it, but practically, I think that most of us tend to ignore the problems that we have with God. I'll prove it. If you've ever found yourself coming to grips with something that God says that you should do, something plain. There's plenty of stuff here in the Word, so just pick one, and you say, I wish God never said that. Or like me, you've grown up in church and you say, ah, well, I know God said that we shouldn't, but I'm just going to go and do it because I know that he'll forgive me. That's ignoring God. That's treating God as if he doesn't exist. That's you and I saying there is a concern. There's something on God's heart that he wants from us. Whether it's telling the truth, whether it's treating people with dignity, whether it's evangelizing and sharing our faith. There's certain things that God wants from us that you and I constantly find ourselves in a place where we just feel on the inside. I know that it's a concern to him, but it's not as much of a concern to me. I'd rather just act like I didn't hear it and wait for it to go away. And here's what reinforces that in our hearts is sometimes we do that. We clearly reject the things that God has told us to do and nothing bad happens. 
And life goes well for us. And we think it's not that big of a deal. So the next time that we're faced with the same thing, do you know what we do? The same thing and ignore God and feel like, I didn't share my faith. I didn't talk about what, what, what God wants for me. I did that thing that I know that I shouldn't have done, but life's still good. I've still got my job. I've still got my family. I've still got my friends. And it reinforces this thing in our heart where we feel like if I have a problem with something God says, I can ignore it. And it's one of those problems that will just go away. Is that true? Is it really the from this? I don't think that it is. And I want to show you here from the text why it's not the case. But more than that, I want us to take a step back. Right. Last week, we spent time and talked about how um, the most important thing for us is how we treat God's word. We talked about how you treat God's word shows what it is that you really think of God. But one thing that I know about all of us is that we fall in places where we treat God's word very poorly and we don't do the things that he's called us to do. So it's more important than how we treat God's word is how does God treat people that ignore him or don't do what he says. That's what's really going to be important. And if you feel like you're a failure when it comes to this, I want you to know that there's hope. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Jonah, uh, chapter one. Jonah, chapter one. There are problems in life that we could ignore and they just leave. There are problems in life that we ignore and they get worse. I asked you, which one do you think your problems with God fall into? And that was kind of a trick question. Because the main point that I want to make today from this text is this. God won't be ignored. God can't be ignored. Running from God doesn't stop God's engagement with us. It just starts God's pursuit of us. God can't be ignored. He refuses to be ignored. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 4, I mean verse 1 through 3, we're all familiar with this story. Jonah is a man. God's been clear with him, right? right? Clarity is never the problem when it comes to doing God's will. God's abundantly clear with what he wants from us. It's a conceited and a stubborn heart that thinks that we know better than God that causes us to turn from God. God's clear from him. Clear with him about what he wants him to do. And Jonah doesn't say a word to God, but he goes the opposite direction and ignores God. If you found yourself in a place like this, I want you to know that there's hope starting in verse four. Here's the very first piece of hope that we get. When we ignore God and we think that we've got away with it and things go well, it's this. Here's what God does. God disrupts our false sense of peace. God disrupts our false sense of peace. Starting in verse 4, it starts with this one word, but. We're going to stop right there. Anytime you see this word in your Bible, highlight it, underline it, put a star next to it. It's one of the most important words outside of God that you're going to read in your Bibles because it gives you a contrast. 
it tells you that whatever's getting ready to be said here comes in direct relationship to what was just said before. It starts off and it says this, but, so we go back to verse three, right? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And verse four starts off and says this, but as Jonah's trying to leave from the presence of God and ignore him, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The very first thing that takes place with God not being ignored and God pursuing us is this. God comes and God will disrupt our false sense of peace. We spend so much time as Christians or folks that find ourselves in church Praying that God would calm the storms in our lives. Praying that God would take away the storms. And we do want to pray for those things, but we want to acknowledge that sometimes it is God that actually causes the storm. This starts out and it says Jonah led. And it's not just that there's this storm that takes place. It says that God causes this storm. Why? To wake up Jonah. As he's fleeing from God's presence, he just so happens to find this ship that's going to take him to west of the known world. He has enough money to pay for fare on this ship. He gets on this ship and he doesn't even have to do any work. He goes down and he goes straight to sleep and things look good. Even in the midst of this big storm, things seem good. And it's reminiscent. It reminds us of the story in the Bible, right? Where Jesus is on the ship. There's this big storm that goes fast. Or there's this big storm that goes. And Jesus is on the bottom of the ship sleeping. And it seems like Jesus is at peace with this. And we find Jonah here in the same place. And one thing that we see is this. Apathy can look a whole lot like peace. It's like when you're flying in an airplane and you look down, everybody looks exactly the same. Not because they're actually the same. It's just because you're so far off and it seems like they look the same. Apathy in this case, it looks like Jonah is at peace. That's why at times one of the most worthless things that somebody can say, yeah, well, I chose to go this route and I feel at peace. I don't have sleepless nights. Things are fine. If your peace is a false peace, it's no good. 
And the very first thing that God does is he disrupts this false sense of peace. He won't let Jonah sleep. It's not just that he sends this storm, but the irony that we see here is in this book. Do you know the very first people to pray? It's not Jonah. It's a group of pagans that are scared for their life. Do you know the ver- the first people? As the ship's getting ready to go down. To actually do something about the trouble they find themselves in. It's not the prophet of God. It's not the one that has all the answers. It's people that are on the ship just struggling to stay alive. The boat that they're on. This is not just some boat that they're uh, out on the lake for the 4th of July. This is a cargo ship. They're making their living off of what's on the content of this boat. And as they're fearful for their safety and for their lives, they're not just willing to pray and to cry out to their gods, but they're willing to throw overboard the things that are valuable to them. And all the while, the one person on the boat that actually has an answer is fast asleep. And it looks like peace. It looks like he's not worried, but that's not the case at all. It's just that he doesn't care. What an indictment that is. Not just to him, but to all of us that find ourselves and consider ourselves God's people are the ones that really have the answers. When the world around us is crumbling and going to hell, it's easy for us. To sleep right through the night and call that peace when at the end of the day, it may not be that you're not worried. It may just be that you don't care. And here's the beauty of what God does. God doesn't let him sleep through that. God disturbs him. God sends this storm and God sends this pagan, this guy to use the same words that God did at the start of the book. Arise, get up. One of the most disturbing things that can take place in life, I'm convinced of, is to be woken up from good sleep. Right? Uh, we were at a conference a few years back, and uh, me and a group of guys were in these rooms. These beds were awful, right? So it took us so long to get to sleep. And we finally get to sleep. And we at about 1 a.m., a fire alarm goes off. So we get up and we rush out and we think, man, if there's an alarm that went off at this time, it must have been because there was actually a fire. And as we get out, it turns out that there was actually not one. So everybody was frustrated because a false alarm that wakes you up out of good sleep is an inconvenience. But what do you call an alarm that wakes you up out of bad sleep? There are these things called carbon monoxide uh, uh, alarms. And they're placed on the wall because what takes place is that when carbon monoxide comes into your house, it's undetectable. You can't tell that it's there, but it'll kill you. The same is true for the Christian. When apathy starts to sneak in, it looks like peace. It looks like you're calm. It's look like, it looks like you're not riled up, but at the end of the day, it's only gonna hurt you and everybody else that you find yourself in relationship with. 
And so this isn't a bad thing that God does. It's a very good thing that God does to sometimes disrupt our peace and to send storms to wake us up out of slumber. 14 years ago, God did this for me in my life. When although I would have considered myself a Christian, I lived life pursuing everything that I shouldn't have. And life worked out just fine. Until I find myself in Nigeria with my parents and my brothers and sisters driving down a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. And our car gets a flat tire. Step out of the car, change the flat tire. And two men come from out of the bushes with guns and they shoot the guns up in the air and they say, oh, y'all get down on the ground. And as we laid down there on the ground, as they went through the back of our car and took all of our passports, plane ticket money and the car key so that we couldn't leave. Do you know what I thought and what I felt on the inside? It was as if I saw the world clearly and I just felt like I've been asleep. I've wasted my whole life. And now everything that I worked for is absolutely worthless at this point in time. Granted, God saved us and our family and he brought us through. But I look back in hindsight on that time and I think I'm grateful that God disrupted my false sense of peace. I'm grateful that God allowed me for a moment to experience hell on earth so that he could preserve me from hell after earth. And this is what God does with all of us at times. Now, I'm not trying to call you to go on a witch hunt and to track every hard thing that goes on into your life to the root cause. And this must be because I sin this way. And this must be because God was trying to do this for me. I'm not trying to ask you to do that at all. What I am saying is that in the same way that this but connects, right? Jonah fled on the sea. God chased him on the sea. It is apparent and clear. My main point is when it becomes apparent and clear that God is disrupting your false sense of peace, don't ignore it. There is nothing that's off limits. Don't let success or things that go well fool you and lull you to sleep. Don't let the success that you have in your job right now make you think that God is okay with the fact that you've ignored certain things that he said in other areas of your life. Don't let this getting obsessed with getting the spouse of your dreams or getting the job of your dreams or getting into to the school of your dreams make you think that life is okay. Is God trying to get your attention right now? You may find yourself here today as somebody that for all intents and purposes, this is has run from God. Your life is one clearly where, you know, I try to get away. I try to avoid what God says when I hear him. I'm not really eager to flock to hear his word or to surround myself with people that are gonna tell me those things. If you found yourself here today and you feel a little uneasy, 
that maybe God graciously just disrupting this false sense of peace just to get you to take a step back and to look at life. God doesn't stop there, though. He's gracious and he does choose to to disrupt our false sense of peace. But then he goes on. Verse seven says this. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. God doesn't just disrupt our false sense of peace. Here's the next thing that God does. God puts on display the horror of hollow words, of empty words. Right. I want you to see again. This is not just Jonah. This is not just the story of a man coming to an awakening of the ways that he's run from God in the same way that our story is not one of us just waking up one morning and saying, I get it. God is behind all of this. So once they bring him up, do you know how they try to find out who's guilty? They say, let's cast lots. Or draw straws, right? And the person that gets the long straw, it's your fault. Picture if that's the way that people try to find out, like, guilt behind crimes. And you didn't do anything, but you just drew the long straw. So they do this to try to find out who did it. And out of all the people that could have drawn the long straw, do you know who got it? Jonah. Do you know who caused it? God. Proverbs 16.33 says this. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's a picture of this God that is so sovereign that he controls the role of every die. That's not saying that if you pray hard enough that you could go to yeah, yeah, yeah Vegas and when, right? That's not what this is trying to say. It's just saying, look, God is behind all of this. And these guys are so frustrated that do you know what they do? They ask Jonah, all right, where are you from? Where did you come from? Somebody pull up this guy on LinkedIn, Google, Facebook. Let's find out where he's from. This is how deep his apathy goes. It's his fault. He knows that it's his fault. And when they ask him to tell them about himself, look at the words that he'll use. Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, and I fear the Lord. Hollow, empty words. That word that's used there for fear is I worship, I reverence, I stand in awe of this God. Jonah's honest, but his words are hollow. 
They're empty. They're worthless. And at the end of this, these guys that are here that have been put in harm's way because of what he's done, they're horrified. They say, what have you, how could you do this? Uh, a few years ago when I moved to Atlanta, um, me and a pastor friend of mine that we moved here to start a church with, we would play in these basketball leagues here. Um, and we didn't get along with the refs very well, him more so than uh, me. There was this one game, I'll never forget it. The refs were awful, and he was berating these referees, I mean, just rude, just say, like not demeaning stuff, but he was going in on them, right, to the point where the referees are just, they're fed up. So what they, we, we stop at halftime and they say to him, man, you're criticizing me and my job. What do you do? And he says, I'm a pastor. And they say, What? And he says, I'm a pastor. And all three of the refs laugh. It was so embarrassing, right? More for him than it was for me. You know, I just kind of slid off to the side. But it was embarrassing. Why? Because his words were empty. You're a pastor, so you have a church where you tell folks all of what that they should do. And now here you are in a city league game that means nothing, and you're treating us this way. It was embarrassing. And he was exposed, and we asked ourselves, well, well, does God do that to us at times, just to embarrass us? No, because at the end of the day, do you know who takes a bigger hit than he does? God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Romans 2, 21 says this. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one not commit adultery, do you commit Adultery, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God sends Jonah to preach his grace to people that are far from him. But on this ship, do you know the people that are more exemplifying God's compassion and love and grace? The people that he was sent to go and preach to. I want you to hear this. Even the briefest of interactions that we have with people can leave the biggest and lasting impressions on who God is. My opponents of Christianity and all of what God's done, it's not that there's a bunch of folks out there that have read the Bible from cover to cover and have examined closely all of what God says. Some of y'all in this room have found yourself in a place where you said, man, I'd never become a Christian because, not of 1 John 1, 
I'll never become a Christian because of that, that one guy, John, that I met. I'll never become a Christian because of him. The briefest of interactions can leave the biggest of impressions. This past week, we were at the neighborhood association meeting, and um, it takes place here in the West End at a library here. Uh, they rent it from the city, and because we do, they turn off the AC after hours. So think of this small room with 900 people is what it feels like. It's more like 80, but it feels like 900 people in this hot room. I mean, everybody's sweating. And so they come up with a, hey, there's a church here in the neighborhood that we could go and meet at or rent at. It'll be a small fee, cheaper than anything else. What are y'all's thoughts? Immediately, hands were raised. And the first objection was, they've been terrible neighbors. Why would we support them? Now, I don't know how much merit there is to what was said there. And so we're not here to kind of say, well, is that true or is it not? I don't know how much merit there is, but I do know that it is a concern that's all too common. I don't think anybody here was shocked by what I said, that there was actually a church that found themselves in a place that were terrible neighbors. And I think that's the problem. Hollow words, words that give the illusion that they have a whole lot of weight, but are unable to support anybody. It feels like somebody that looks and y'all used to play this game when you were kids where you had a friend that looked down and they saw a chair and they're getting ready to sit down in the chair and somebody pulls the chair out and they fall down. Hollow words give the illusion that they can carry the weight of people's problems. But when they actually try to rest their problems there, they find nothing. And the consequences are, is that people get hurt. These people here are fearful for their lives because of Jonah's hollow words. A magician named uh, Penn, who's in atheist says this about Christians, right? And here's the words that he said specifically about Christians who say that they have this message from God that's going to save them from their sins and hell, but refuse to share that, right? So folks that would claim to be Christians, but don't share God's truth. Here's what he says, an atheist. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make things socially awkward, I don't respect that at all. And then he's going to use this word, and I think it's the most powerful word. Let me think of. How much do you have to hate somebody to not share your faith? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. 
And if this is supposed to be more important than that, why aren't more Christians tackling other people? Hollow words. It's not just an inconvenience. It doesn't just uh, give God bad PR. But it actually stands in the way of people that are far from God being able to come to him. I had a pastor friend that said, closed mouths lead to an open hell. Here's the beauty of what takes place. Here's the benefit of being a part of a church community. Uh, Finding yourself in a group that believes this same thing about the horror of hollow words. The benefit is this. One, we all know that we have the same stuff inside here. There's nobody that's more fixed up than anybody else. So one, hollow words shouldn't surprise us. But two, we shouldn't settle in them either. As a church, one of the things that we've committed to do is to say, hey, I know that in some way, shape, or form, there's going to be somebody, and you're going to have some area in your life where your words seem like they have this weight, but your life really doesn't match up. So what I want to do as a brother or a sister is to help fill in those words. It's to call you out when I don't see that things match up. It's to help bring some weight to all of those words. Here in a place where it's safe so that you don't leave out and let those hollow words influence how strangers think of our God. Right? The benefit of community is this, that you find yourself in a place where the things that people will say about you behind your back, they'll say it to you. To your face so that you can grow. And you don't have to stay in the same place. What's hard about not finding yourself in those kind of relationships. Is that hollow words just cause a judgment on God. And you really don't have any say so. So what does this mean for us as Christians, those that love God and talk a great game about how we serve this God that keeps us safe, it means that you being lazy at work or on your job causes more harm than good. It makes all the words that you say about the fact that you fear God and worship a God who created the concept of work and said that it's a good thing, it makes those words hollow. You have an amazing opportunity, not just with strangers, but parents with your kids, husbands with your wives, people that you see day in and day out to fill in those words. So what God does here, As he's chasing Jonah down, the very first thing that he does is God disrupts our false sense of peace. Sometimes the storms that we find in our life are actually a gift from God that we should praise him for because it wakes us up. 
He doesn't just disrupt our false sense of peace, but God displays the fact that sometimes our words are hollow and they can do more harm than good. Here's the last thing that God does. And it's going to feel like bad news right now, but wait until I get to the end. God not only disrupts our false sense of peace, displays our hollow words, but the third one is this. In light of all of that guilt, God demands justice be served. God doesn't let anybody off of the hook. Watch. Yeah, you read here what takes place. Verse uh, uh, 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Right. One of the graces of God here is that they don't even have time to critique this God because they know. All right. Jonah serves this God. He's mad. Let's save our judgments from God until we find out how we can stop this. And so they say, uh, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? And it says, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It got worse and worse. Who's behind that? God, verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry ground, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Here's what takes place. They say, what do we do? Right? And because we know the end of the story, we think Jonah says, throw me over because I know that there's going to be a big fish waiting for me. Jonah doesn't know that. When he says, throw me over, what he's saying is, throw me to my death. Here's justice when it comes to the way that you and I have sinned against God, so that we're all crystal clear. Justice is not, I did wrong and I sinned against God, therefore, I'm not going to get this job. That's not even. Ignoring God is this. It's saying, God, I'm going to treat you like you don't exist because I don't have the power to actually make you not exist. So I'm just going to pretend like I actually have the power to make you not exist. Ignoring God is calling for God's head. Ignoring God is saying, God, if I had the power, I would ensure that you didn't infringe on my life. Ignoring God is treason. Jonah, as somebody that knows God, says this. If I'm going to pay for this sin, it's going to cost me my life. And so what he says is throw me over. And do you know how the people respond? The same way that we all do when we think of the concept of justice for sin being death. It's unsettling. What we think is, no, 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 no. I promise that I'm just not going to do the same thing from here on out. We've all said that before. How well has that actually worked out for you? Not well. And so as hard as they try to row back and to get them back to shore, right? So they think, all right, Jonah was supposed to go and preach. He came with us. So here's what's going to take place. We're just going to make things right. 
we're just going to have a do-over. We're going to live our lives as if future acts of obedience can take away the wrong things that we've done from God. And as they try to row, do you know what he does? He makes it harder and harder for them to row because he wants them to know it's not going to happen. God does not accept future payment for past debts. Verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, right? Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, has done as it has pleased you. They're crying out saying, we don't want to die for him. He's saying that we should kill him and we'll throw him. But God, don't hold his trespasses against us. That's what they're praying for. And look here at verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Here's what takes place. They throw Jonah to his death. And that was the thing that caused the storm to cease. God had the payment for his sin. That was justice. Listen, and I want you to hear this. For everybody that thinks God understands why I did the things that I did wrong and what I need most is for God to just be lenient on my sin this time or for God to go easy. Leniency doesn't produce people that fear God. Leniency, it doesn't make people more lawful. All that leniency does is it encourages copycats to do the same thing and to think I can get off the same way that he did. In the past week here in the news, there's a a guy that's been on the news and his name is Brock Turner. Some of y'all have heard this name. What took place was it was this guy that was caught in the act of assaulting an unconscious lady behind a dumpster. Guys tackled him and caught him in the act and waited until the, the, the cops came. And when it came time for his trial, do you know what he got at the end of the day after they saw that he was guilty of three counts? Do you know what he got? Six months in a county jail, and he may get out in three months. And there's been an uproar, and people have been frustrated. Not just because of what takes place for him, but do you know what else? Now that that ruling has been made, people that find themselves doing the same thing will go back and appeal to that as, no, Precedent has been set. See, this takes place. So, And people are frustrated because they feel like this didn't help out anybody. Justice wasn't served. It is actually going to encourage people to do the same thing and to think that they can get away with it. So when the Bible says that death is the consequence for sin, I want it to be crystal clear. God intends on ensuring that justice is served. He won't be ignored. 
He'll chase people down, wake them up out of their sleep, make sure that their guilt is clear to the rest of the world, and show that justice will be served. Here's the most beautiful thing about this story. Jonah doesn't die. Verse 17 says this, And the Lord, the same Lord that caused this lack, uh, the same Lord that caused the storm, that kept the storm going, that called for Jonah's head. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Here's the good news of what God does. God shows the depths of his compassion by chasing people that don't deserve an ounce of it. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is this. God demands that justice would be served so that people would see him rightly and praise him and fear him. But here's what God does. Jonah didn't get God's justice. Jesus got God's justice. The good news of the gospel, the reason why God chases us so down... uh, so hard in the midst of our sin is not because he's saying I want to chase you so that I can tell you what you did wrong it's God saying I want to chase you down so that I could give you this good news uh, a few months ago I got this um, letter in the mail that uh, came from a uh, uh, property out in Houston and I've had some trouble with it in the past and so my very first thought was how did they find me? They always find me, right? Like we, like we've all gone to like schools and stuff where you can move six times. But when it comes to people trying to get money, they'll find you. When I opened it up and I read a little closer, what I found out was, wait, wait, wait. This wasn't a bill. It was actually a check. Praise him, right? <laughs> So I went from saying, how did they find me, to boy, am I glad that they did. (laughs) I want you to hear this, especially for those who may find yourself here right now and feel like I'm running from God because I know that he's called me to do things that I don't want to do. It's this running from God is running towards God's judgment. You can't ignore him. He won't be ignored. But the beauty is that God chases us down to show us at the end of the day, justice is going to have to be served. But justice was served not on Jonah, but Jesus. And the reason why we read that passage in Mark about Jesus getting on the boat and calming that storm is for us to see that the Bible only makes sense in so much as we read all these stories and it points forward to Jesus. Jonah was asleep on the bottom of this boat because he didn't care. Jesus found himself on a boat in the midst of a storm and he was asleep. And when they woke him up and they said, do you care that we're going to die? What he said is, it's not that I don't care. It's that I'm not worried. The way that this boat was called was by Jonah's absence. They had to throw him off. 
when Jesus saw the disciples in Mark, and they're in this boat in the midst of this storm, and the seas are raging, do you know what calms the storm? Jesus' presence on the boat. He steps in. They had to throw Jonah off. These sailors are praying, saying, we don't want to die for somebody else's sin. Do you know what Jesus does? He volunteers to die for our sin. These sailors are praying, saying, God, don't hold us responsible for rightly punishing the guilty party. Do you know what Jesus says to the people that are guilty of killing an innocent man? God, don't hold them responsible for their guilt. I'll take that. When God forgives you of sin, God is not being lenient. He's not letting you off of the hook. I want you to know justice is served. It just wasn't served on you. That's the good news. That's why God's been trying to chase you down. If you feel like I've run from God, I don't want to hear what he has to say. It's because you haven't heard all of what he wants to say. After he talks about the justice. What he says is, wait, but don't run. You don't have to take the justice. There's somebody that's volunteered to take that. That's the beauty of the gospel. If you run from God, then maybe in this life, but definitely in the life to come, you're going to meet him as a judge. You stop in your tracks and run towards God or just turn around. To repent means that I turn from my sin. Even now you can sit here and say in your seat, Lord, I've been running from you. I don't have the strength to run back, but forgive me, God. Remind me, God, God, I'm grateful that Jesus took the punishment for my sin. And we change our, our course. If that takes place in this life, then you don't meet God as a judge. You meet him as a father. You're brought into his family. God's chasing you down, not to punish you, but to give you a prize. And that prize is eternal life and peace with him. So when God does that, when the storm does in fact come in your life, if God is so gracious to send that, when he exposes you and the dirt and the mess and all the stuff that is going on in your life, don't make excuses. Accept it. Acknowledge it as true. Be reminded of the fact that you are not alone in that judgment. You're not. Regardless of if anybody else makes you feel like you're less than or you're worse than because things have gone on in your heart, you're not. All of us fall short when it comes to meeting God's standard. When you're exposed, accept it. Acknowledge it. You can go a step further and beat God to the punch. Find people that you know and trust. 
and confess those things. More than all of that, there's one question that I want you to ask yourself. For those of y'all that may find yourself still here and say, man, I just don't know. Ask yourself this question. What am I afraid of? Write it down and think about that this week. When it comes to really engaging with God and hearing what he has to say about the way that you should live your life, what are you afraid of? Are you f- afraid that things aren't going to work out well and that they will be bad? Let me ensure you that running away from God is only going to make that fear that you have a certainty and a very likely one. You have nothing to be afraid of. God chases us not to speak words of condemnation but to give us a cure and to show his compassion. And in God's journey to try to produce compassion inside of Jonah, the way that God does it for him is the same way that he does it for all of us by reminding us that we're the ones that are most in need of God's compassion. And God proves that he's compassionate because he chases down people who don't deserve an ounce of it. That's you and I. We're grateful. And for those of us that really believe that that's what God has done for us, it changes the way that we look at people. It changes the way that we serve people. Because we find that they are no more disqualified from receiving our compassion as we were from receiving God's. That's the point of compassion. It's given to people that don't earn it. My prayer is that God would make us a church of people that live like our God and chase down people in compassion the same way that he has. Let's pray. Father, once again, uh, we just we leave here in awe of you. There's no to do list or checklist for us as we live here. Um, Lord, we've come here today to worship you. And I pray that that would be the case, that the thought of the way that you've loved us so unconditionally would be the thing that changes us and draws us to you, Father. Remind us that you won't be ignored, and that's the best news that any of us have ever heard. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.